Hello, powerful people. Welcome back to the Power at Work blog. My name is Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Burns Center for Social Change at Northeastern University, and so glad to have you back here at the Power at Work blog. If it's your first visit, welcome. Good to see you. We've got a really, really interesting blogcast for you today. We're going to be talking about organizing and bargaining for the workers at cultural institutions, in particular at museums. And we'll be talking with four very powerful women from UAW Local 2110 in New York City about their experiences uh, with organizing and bargaining for uh, museum workers. Um, they'll be led by Maida Rosenstein, who's the former president of Local 2110. She's now the organizing director. She's had experience organizing graduate students and other academic workers at NYU and Columbia University and other higher ed institutions. And she's organized at other not-for-profits and museums. Um, been a labor activist for more than 30 years, really knows a lot and shares a lot in this broadcast um, uh, that we recorded last Thursday, August 17th. Um, you're going to hear from Erica Wentworth. Erica works at the Whitney Museum of Art. She's a graphic designer in their in-house graphic design department. She was an important member of the union's bargaining committee when they tried to strike a, strike a deal with the Whitney management. They have 180 members uh, in their union. Uh, so Erica talked a little bit about that. In this interview, we have Carissa Francis, who loved the organizing so much that she's now become a full-time organizer for the UAW. Uh, she was in the visitor services department at the Whitney Museum, along with Erica, um, and uh, uh, you know they they won the election, and she just she sort of got got the fever, and decided to stay as an organizer. Um, and you'll hear from her as well. And then finally, uh, uh, last but not least, Jordan Barnes, uh, who works at uh, the Museum of Fine Arts (MFA) in Boston, Massachusetts, which is literally within the geographic boundaries of Northeastern University. She is a Northeastern University alum. Um, she was also on the bargaining committee and she is now a unit chair, sort of the chief steward of her union uh, in the, uh, in, at MFA. Uh, and so really, really interesting and it took 18 months for them to bargain a contract with MFA management. You like to think if you're a if you're a museum fan like I am, if you whatever city you're in, you go to museums uh, and you sort of think of them as these you know sort of uplifting and educational and refined and sophisticated organizations. You'd like to think that the management of these organizations approach labor relations in a more enlightened way. If you think that you're going to be really disappointed by what you're going to hear in this uh, blogcast. It's just as much a struggle almost uh, as it is with other employers. Uh, maybe a little less. Uh, you'll have to sort of assess that for yourself. We have the same hopes and expectations with respect to higher education, let me just say. And sometimes it's true and other times it's not as true as Meta mentioned during this, uh, this blogcast. So you're in for a good one. Uh, I, I really hope you enjoy what we're bringing to you. Let me just talk about a couple of or three uh, stories, news stories that are out there uh, in the labor news right now. There's a, there's a, goodness gracious, there is a huge amount going on. And if you want to keep up with all of the stories that are out there, I really encourage you to, to subscribe to the blog and we will send you the weekly 
download. The weekly download collects a couple of dozen articles, studies, opinion pieces, videos, other things that are on the web uh, about uh, worker organizing, collective action, strikes, bargaining, interesting inside stories about the labor movement uh, from a variety of sources, not just the traditional mainstream media, but from a wide variety of sources, including from unions themselves. Um, so don't, I'm not going to be able to report to you on all of that stuff, but go to the weekly download. You, you can subscribe and get it sent to your inbox. You can also find it on the Power at Work blog. Uh, and uh, we have a new design, a brand new design to the Power at Work blog right now. I encourage you to go and take a look at it. It's absolutely beautiful. It's really terrific. But if you go to the very top of the homepage, you can click on the weekly download and all the weekly downloads. I think we're up to number 30 right now. Um, uh, are there. So you can go back and it's a collection of just a fantastically huge number of stories about what's going on in the labor movement. But there are three that I want to talk about very, very uh, quickly with you here before we get to our, our excellent interview with uh, uh, the, the representatives of local UAW Local 2110. The first is that this week, uh, uh, our friends at the United Auto Workers are going to take a vote on whether or not to authorize a strike. The membership will vote on whether or not to authorize a strike against the big three U.S. auto manufacturers. Um, my own view is that uh, that strike authorization vote is going to overwhelmingly end in yes. Uh, my guess is 90% plus of the members will vote to authorize a strike. That doesn't mean that inevitably there will be a strike, um, but it means that the members are standing squarely behind their leadership and their bargaining committee and the demands that they're making at the bargaining table. Um, you're going to see a lot of news coverage of that. Uh, but let me also say, I think we may be headed for a strike uh, with the UAW. It's not exactly clear whether they would just strike one of the automakers. My guess would be it would be Stellantis if they do, or they'll strike all three. Unclear right now. Um, there's, there's some distance between the company's positions and the union's positions. The union is pressing very, very hard to undo years and years of concession bargaining. Um, I've written about concession bargaining coming to an end, both with the Teamsters UPS negotiations and these UAW negotiations. Go take a look at that on the Power at Work blog, but keep an eye out for these negotiations. The, the, the deadline, the contract expires middle of September. Um, I think we might be headed for a strike uh, in the auto industry. Hard to know how long it would last or or what would be required in order to bring it to a close, but but it's beginning to feel that way. Unclear, but but uh, uh, I, I would say it leans in that direction. Um, another strike, the writers and actors strike continues. The writer strike has been going on, for goodness sakes, for more than 110 days. 110 days. I think it's actually longer than that now. Um, we have a great piece on the blog uh, by my colleague, Asia Sims, who um, uh, found some video back from the last writer's strike in 2007 that gives you a little sense of some of the issues that they were dealing with then. They, they are f strikingly similar to some of the issues that the parties are dealing with right now. I think you'll get a real kick out of it. So go look at Labor Artifact about the writer's strike from 2007. Uh, you know, fingers crossed that the writers uh, will be able to get a deal 
Um, uh, the, the studios have just have really mismanaged this labor relations process really poorly managed. Uh, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons we have two unions uh, out on strike right now. And production has essentially ground to a halt, except for the independent films and television productions that are where the producers are not a part of the producer trade association, the AMPTP. Um, but otherwise, you know, most of the major television streaming other series are, are stopped because of this strike, and we may not see them again soon. A smaller story, but one that I'm immensely proud of. Uh, I, I take no credit for it. I had nothing to do with it except to talk about it in a prior broadcast uh, and tweeting about it. But Cornell University, my alma mater, has announced that in 2025, they will no longer be doing business with Starbucks. And the reason that the university came to that conclusion is because the students on the Cornell campus in Ithaca, New York, vigorously protested that relationship. In essence, what they said to the university is, you cannot be a land-grant institution that carries out the best interests of the public and do business with a law-breaking union buster. And to her immense credit, her tremendous credit, President Martha Pollack of Cornell University agreed and they're going to sever that relationship. And there is activism going on on campuses all across the United States to get Starbucks off campus. My hope is that the success at Cornell will spark an even larger movement all across the U.S. to get Starbucks off every campus in every state in the United States, uh, not just public schools, not just land-grant institutions, but private schools as well, so that the schools can maintain some degree of integrity in the way they conduct business and the way in which they, they do business with their, uh, their students and their faculty and their staff. Let um, me just say, this is not going to bring Starbucks to its knees. Uh, you know, the, maybe the Cornell contract, I don't, I don't know what it's worth. Maybe it's worth a few million dollars, maybe a few hundred thousand dollars. I did somewhere in between. Who knows? I don't know what it's worth. But it sends a potent message that you cannot get away with law-breaking, you cannot get away with union-busting, you cannot get away with firing workers because they support a union, and have nobody take action based on it. You know, the law is limited in how it can punish employers who break the law. But those of us who are in the public who care about these issues can act. And shout out to Nick and Danielle and the other students on the Cornell campus for, for standing up for what's right. Uh, you know, uh, Starbucks closed all three unionized Starbucks in Ithaca, New York. And the students said, this is not going to stand. We're not going to allow this to happen. We're not going to allow Cornell to be an alternative to unionized Starbucks in College Town and downtown on the Commons and other places. And so they took this action. And I think it's, it's, I think Howard Schultz heard it loud and clear. Okay. Those are the three stories I wanted to talk about with you. Now, what I want you to do is Listen closely to these four very powerful women from UAW Local 2110 as they talk about organizing and bargaining for workers in the museum sector. Enjoy. Well, first, let me say thanks to all of you for being with us. Uh, we, uh, I'm a huge museum goer. I love museums. We travel all over the world to see them. So really delighted to have actual museum experts, cultural institution experts with us. But I want to talk about workers in uh, in cultural institutions and your work with them. Uh, so, Maida, I want to start with you uh, because you've been doing this for a good long time, former president of the union, now organizing director. So I want to I want to start with this. Um, 
back in the my parents were school teachers. And back in the 1960s, when the public school teacher movement really began, there was some resistance from some teachers because they really wanted to view themselves as professionals, not as sort of frontline workers who would need a union, right? They weren't auto workers. They weren't steel workers. Why would we need a union? Now, obviously, the teachers successfully overcame that resistance. There may still be some pockets of resistance out there, but as a general matter, teachers now acknowledge the need for a union. Do you, in your organizing of museum workers and other cultural institution workers, have you encountered that same kind of resistance? Because museum organizing is, it's, it's not a brand new phenomenon, but it's not something that's been around for a really long time. So is that part of why it's more of a new phenomenon or is there something else going on? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons why um, museum workers have most recently been on the move and have been organizing. As you say, some museum workers have organized a long time ago. Um, and I think it's, it's definitely true of uh, museum workers and other so-called white-collar and professional workers that there was an attempt to try to, you know, divide them and, and uh, make people, sort of divert people into thinking that their um, professional status or the fact that they worked in an office, um, you know, meant that they shouldn't associate themselves with um blue-collar organizing or factory organizing. In museums, I mean, it used to be the case that uh, people would openly say, um, well, you shouldn't work for a museum unless you were a trust fund baby. So this is really not about being a worker. Um, this is about, you know, this is about work for people who come from a very rich family and can afford to dabble in museums. Um, that's changed, I think, very much. Um, you know, in in the last 10 years. Um, and, um, you know, museums have expanded a lot. Workforces have expanded. And, uh, you know, there aren't enough trust fund babies to go around to staff all the museums. And so, um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't think it carries uh, the same kind of, uh, that argument doesn't carry the same kind of weight with people. And there are right. still, yeah. No, there are still ahead. divides. No, I, I think there are still divides, um, you know, um, and and I've, I've, we've seen museums very directly, museum management very directly try to appeal to people on the basis of their, you know, professionals that don't need the same things as other workers and, um, you know, therefore should expect, um, you know, that um, the, you know, the kinds of rights that you would negotiate in a union contract uh, are not applicable or unnecessary. So yeah. that, that goes yeah. on a lot. So I, I, I love the idea that having a trust fund would be viewed as a prerequisite for working in a museum rather yeah. than say having knowledge of art or having a degree in art history or in history or in some other relevant yeah. field. That's uh, that's a, a surprising proposition, maybe not all that persuasive. So all right, let me get into a, a more specifics. And Carissa, let me come to you on this. Um, uh, were you there when the Whitney or you're, you work at the, the Whitney for those uh, who might uh, uh, who might not know that um, uh, one of the a great museum in New York City. Um, 
So were you there when they organized the union at the Whitney? And and what did that look like? What were the conversations like among, with you and your coworkers about should we have a union? Why do we need a union? What will it mean to have a union? Is that the way that we, we really want to be? What What was that experience like? Yes. So I was actually um, one of the first to organize um, the Whitney. Um, it really started in visitor services, which is where I worked and then kind of spread from there. Um, the interesting thing about it is, and the great thing about the Whitney is that people really like each other there, which is not <laughs> um, required for organizing, but it certainly helps. And so conversations about organizing and about our working conditions were already kind of happening. Um, and then with the pandemic, it really kind of escalated from there. And I think we were kind of part of that crop of um, museums that were really affected by the pandemic and affected by a lot of the decisions that were being made during the pandemic um, and just wanting to have a bigger voice and to have, you know, say over a lot of the policies that were being put in place and changed suddenly and, you know, day-to-day -day working conditions um, at the Whitney. So I would say it wasn't it's work. It's not, I will not, you know, uh, undermine the work that, you know, myself and my colleagues really put into organizing at the Whitney. Um, but it was also, you know, it wasn't as difficult as maybe it could have been given that people already had pretty good relationships with each other. So I want to ask you about a particular issue and I'm, I'm eager to get uh, uh, Jordan and Erica and also maybe if you'd like to jump in on this. So if I understand it correctly, when you organize a union, and we, particularly in the Whitney, but I think in the other institutions, you do what's called wall-to-wall -wall organizing, right? You don't organize just the professional staff, just the maintenance staff, just the cafeteria workers. If, I, if I've got it, tell me if I've got this wrong, but as I've got it, you organize everybody in the institution into one union. Now, that I, 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 first of all, do I have that right? And second of all, if I do have that right, I think I learned that from Meta. Um, what does that do to the organizing conversation? And and I'm going to later on get to what it does to the bargaining conversation. But but you know how does how do the professionals feel about being in a unit with the blue collar workers? How do the blue collar workers feel about being in a unit with a bunch of professional workers? And, and how did it affect the conversations around organizing? Yeah, I mean, from the perspective, I worked in front of house when I worked at the Whitney. So, um, you know, we are very siloed in a way, and there was a sense of divide. And I think it's very empowering, actually, to unionize and talk to people in all these other different departments, because you, you know, learn things across departments that you wouldn't have otherwise. And a lot of the issues that are in one department are true for another, just in a different way, or, you know, it looks slightly different. Um, and a lot of issues that we were having in front of house, people, you know, in curatorial or development or digital had no idea that we were going through. So it's it's really empowering and it's it gives a, a much stronger sense of unity, I think, when you're able to um, bridge across department and job type. So I thought right. I think it's wonderful, of course. Right. Yeah. Right. And, I, <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to um, sort of echo the same thing. Like, I really think it strengthens, you know, organizing as a whole when there's like many different kinds of professionals and um different types of people within one 
unit. I think, I mean, I, I work in graphic design, so I'm more on the office side, but I actually think like, not only does it strengthen the organizing, but it kind of like when you're working towards like a common goal, all as one union, um, it actually also like strengthens your work as well. I think it like, there's sort of like, I don't know, relationships that like I have with front of house employees that I maybe wouldn't have had if it weren't for having this like wall to wall unit um, is well, really let, important. I want to <laughs> pick up on that, Erica, because you were on the bargaining committee. Am I right? Also yeah. with the Whitney, yeah. you also work at the Whitney. And so let's talk a little bit about how you bargain for a unit that includes a very diverse group of workers, workers that have a lot of different interests and that are at very different pay scales. I assume there's not a single pay scale at the Whitney for graphic designers and for cafeteria staff and for the curators. Um, so first of all, what was the process within the union of figuring out what the bargaining priorities are and what was it like going to management and bargaining on behalf of a wide variety of folks who presumably had some diverse concerns? Um, well, I mean, I think people have diverse concerns, but there's also like many things that like, even if we're on sort of different pay scales or realities, like the issue of being paid fairly for your work is sort of like universal. Um, and like, I don't know, there's like many things like that. There's also like the issue of abusive temporary employees. And that's like, that's a front of house and a back of house issue. Like there are many actual commonalities that are, you know, maybe have different nuances depending on what area of the museum you work in. But there's also like a very firm common ground of like, yeah, it's like, that's a problem for you. That's a problem for me too. Maybe Carissa, you you are in the bargaining game much longer than me. So maybe you could yeah. speak to that even more. Yeah, I mean, we just talked to each other. You know, we surveyed people. We asked people, what are the issues? What do you care about? What's important to you? Um, I mean, you can, you know, bring whatever you want from your own personal perspective, but it's so much stronger when you just literally just have a conversation. Like, what what's going on? What is your job? What do you do day to day? Like, it gives you a good sense of where people are and where people want to go. and people are so have been so underpaid in the arts field specifically that it's like everyone needs a boost up regardless of where you fall into the museum and you know there's there's a lot like erica said of commonalities and universalities but just just knowing what's going on in the workplace what people are doing what they feel like what issues they're having just talking to them we surveyed people it was a lot of on the ground organizing and just face to face conversations with people and following up with people and talking to people and finding out what's going on. I think is well, so, so organizing I, for bargaining, it sounds like. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Bargaining is just more intense, more directed organizing about very specific issues. I was on the bargaining committee for the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. And actually in our election, there was a question on our ballot whether or not professionals wanted to be in a separate union. So right. that was something we had to organize about pre-election. And then once we were in, in those diverse concerns, you're also not only organizing to find out what people need, you are organizing to 
demonstrate to people that they need to have solidarity with their coworkers who have different concerns than them um, and making sure you bridge that between all the different groups that you're representing. All right. So I want to, let me stay with you, Jordan. Um, I, let me just say, we're, we're always thrilled on the Power at Work blog to lift up Northeastern alums. And if I have it <laughs> correct, you are an alumnus of Northeastern. Actually, if you're working at MFA, you didn't go very far from Northeastern. It's, it's, it's actually sort of within that broad Northeastern complex, right? Oh, yes. I started at Simmons and then I went to Northeastern and then I went to the MFA. So I did not move far. You did not move far. Um, you didn't even have to change apartments. How about that? That's great. But let me, I want to ask you uh, about why it is folks organized a union. Was there a triggering event? Was there um, some conflict with the employer? Was it the pandemic that caused folks to do it? Was it earlier than that? Why, what is it that caused folks to all of a sudden because the MFA is not a new institution. It's been around for a good long time. What is it that caused folks to wake up one day or wake up several weeks and say, uh, you know what, we really need a union in this workplace? Yeah, so I think Carissa mentioned that the union at the Whitney, like the nucleus of it, really came out of visitor services. At the MFA Boston, it came out of conservation. Um, the staff there had been for years um, dealing with a very unfair, unequitable pay situation where they were being paid between 15 and 40 percent less than their peers across the industry. That is it you know, went from letters to management, letters to the board, um, and eventually the drive to unionize really got steam at the end of 2019. And by the time spring, summer 2020 came around and the pandemic started, there was a lot of support for it. What really was the flashpoint at that moment from bringing people interested to it to actually getting to an election and getting people to sign membership cards was the fact that the MFA was not very effective at communicating um, during the pandemic. Um, there were a lot of early retirements, a lot of layoffs, a lot of furloughs. People went a very long time without a raise in pay on already low pay. Um, and I think that combined with like, you know, more specific departmental concerns really sort of lit a fire to have the election. So I want to ask this you, is... what was the vote? Well, I just want to ask one quick question, Maida, and I'm going to let you jump in. What was the vote at MFA? On the, I in the think union we election. won the union. It was like somewhere between like 92 and 95 percent right around there. And what, and what was it, uh, Carissa and Erica, what was it at uh, the Whitney? It's about 98 percent. Yeah, it was the yeah, highest. It was high. 98 <laughs> percent. That is really something. I'm sorry, Maida, I interrupted you. Jump in. Yeah. I just wanted to say that I think, you know, that whole question of like what goes back to why museum workers are organizing um, and um, while, you know, I think there were there are specifics about the MFA and specifics about um, about the Whitney, there also like are a lot of um, common issues and the organizing really took off before the pandemic, um, you know, and and um, I think was really the outgrowth of like um massive wage inequality that played out, you know, obviously not only in the bigger picture, but played out in museums as well. I mean, museums expanded a lot. Um, their staff grew, their programs grew, they went into, they did building expansions, et cetera. 
um, their um, directors and leadership um, salaries increased a lot. Um, their billionaire boards became, you know, very prominent. And at the same time, you know, the hidden secret was that pay was really low for almost all of the staff at museums. And in some instances, not just low, but very um, partial, you know, part-time workers, seasonal workers, on-call workers, you know, et cetera. Um, and I think so there was like a brewing uh, thing of growing staff with low salaries, um, you know, uh, really wanting, you know, starting to take, um, take on museums. Um, the MFA, I remember, was very much inspired. I think it sparked um, because they heard about um, the new museum organizing um, in New York. And the new museum is a relatively small institution, but there was like national press on the organizing and museum workers in other places paid attention to this. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, that is how I, um, you know, and, and there, there started to be organizing in, in it, it sparked organizing in other institutions. Um, in particular, I think at the Brooklyn Museum, people were organizing. And it's also an industry that is not a huge industry and people talk to each other. And so people knew about um, the organizing in different places and, um and and it inspired them, and they had many internal reasons to organize as well. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like the Starbucks effect. You had three stores in Buffalo. You had union elections. I believe they won two of the three elections there, and then organically organizing spread all across the United States. And now there are three hundred organized stores. It sounds like something similar happened in your industry. People heard about union organizing. They all of a sudden said, hey, wait a minute. I want one of those. How do I get one of those? We have issues, too. But Maida, I want to right. I want to talk to you about the employers a little bit, because um, sure. mu museums are not typical employers in American culture, right? They're not for profit institutions. They're not usually run by MBA leadership who've been trained in how to maximize profit and they're 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 different they're not different yet. animals not yet not yet so how did they how did they react did, when the unions started organizing were they was the was the quality yeah. you've been or you've organized in a number of different industries right. was the quality of their response in any way different or was it just typical employer, you're not going to have a union here kind of response. Well, I, I think it was very, uh, it varied. And uh, I think the timing and the location had a big impact. When we organized at the new museum, they ran a anti-union campaign. They hired an outside consultant, um, you know, from Kentucky, actually. And um, and, uh, you know, did this sort of classic anti-union campaign. Um, and it, it really didn't work on people. Um, and, uh, other museums sort of saw that they, they, uh, that this didn't work and it, it sort of failed miserably. Um, in, and then as well, I think when the pandemic hit, um, a lot of the museums in New York were almost, they didn't want to have anti-union campaigns. And so they 
allowed elections to go forward without as much problem. Um, some of them, and still are, uh, you know, decided they were going to fight their fights at the bargaining table and be very difficult there. Um, once you get out of New York, though, because there's very high union density, it's it's worse for unions outside of New York, period. So the MFA did run an anti-union campaign during the election. It wasn't a very effective one, um, and it wasn't super heavy-handed for you know in in the in terms of the range of campaigns. But they did um, they used you know they tried to appeal to elitism. They tried to say you lose your flexibility. Um, they did run that campaign. Um, they were difficult um, to bargain with. Um, at the Portland Museum of Art in Maine, they ran a full-scale anti-union campaign. They were really union busters. So I think there was some variation, and I think um, the union density in New York helped us in New York. The timing of the pandemic also, I think, made it difficult. Museums were under such siege during the pandemic themselves that a lot of them were not in a position to take on um, fights with workers with their their own workers and there had, there was a moment too where you know it seemed like workers had were going to have more power um uh you know whether that continues i i think employers will <laughs> you know will you know try to figure out ways to um to regain their their uh, their control over over the situation and certainly these museums are not uh, easy to bargain with. I mean, all of these first contracts have taken a long time. The Whitney, it took us um, over a year to get a contract. It was extremely um, difficult. The same, um, you know, the same with the with the MFA. So um, they're, they're definitely not pushovers. Yeah. So, Erica, I want to talk about the bargaining a little bit. Um, getting a first union contract in almost any industry is extremely difficult, but your industry is, is different because it's largely, unless it's a publicly owned institution, right? Unless it's a public um, museum or a public cultural institution, their funding largely comes from philanthropy, from corporate grant making, from other sources. Did that funding reality play into bargaining? Was it part of the strategy of the employer to say, well, you know, we just, we don't have it. We, you know, we, our money is being given to buy this piece of work or to build this building and we just don't have money for salaries. How, how did that background funding issue play into the discussions that you participated in? I don't know if it was necessarily like brought to the table with like such specificity of like we can't put more money into salaries because we have like x thing i think there was like definitely some amount of like well there, we have the money we have we have to figure out the budget the budget is the budget but um it was never really framed like specifically in that way um i don't know Mado, chris um you have any insights on that as well i didn't yeah, i didn't feel like it was so specific but yeah i've been in negotiations where you know that certainly the question of priority for resources has been an issue i think it was true at the mfa jordan wasn't it you know that definitely 
um, you know, during the bargaining that um, that the issue, uh, you know, of like the the competing needs uh, issue uh, came up. And it's actually been, I think, a re one of the sort of uh, swelling, um, you know, uh, 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 motivations for people to organize, for staff to organize, is the fact that no resources have been put into staff. I know in particular at the MFA, you know, I would hear that people, you know, I would hear people on our committee would speak to the fact that the staff was needed to be considered as valuable, if not more valuable than the collection itself. Um, so, um, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, in, in that sense, museums did try to pit like the needs of employees against the needs of the collection or of, of the art. Um, and so we've attended to a small technical difficulty, and I want to come back to Jordan uh, with a question about um, what life is like at MFA now uh, after the organizing drive, after the bargaining. You know, you, you, you were in a struggle with management about organizing. Obviously, you were in a struggle with management around bargaining. Um, all loves and kisses, hugs and kisses now around MFA between management and union members, or are there still tensions? Is there still conflict? Are there still unresolved issues? There's definitely still tensions, but we're moving towards resolving some of them. Um, I think one of the big things is, is that it is a first contract. So there were a number of issues during organizing and bargaining that we just couldn't solve in the first contract. We spent four months getting a bulletin board language in the contract, so we weren't able to get everything we wanted. And I do keep a list of items for the next contract and we'll see what we can get the next time around. Um, but for the things that are in the contract, there are things that we constantly struggle with over interpretations of the contract or applying them, um, recognition, getting new titles included in the unit. But I think some other things, really positive things have come out. People can have union representation with them when they face a difficult HR meeting or a difficult meeting with a manager. Um, there are a number of people who have gotten temporary pay increases that we've never even had to file a grievance over, which is wonderful. Um, but I think the main issue that still sticks around that you know, overlays everything, all the work we do is the glacial slowness with which the museum moves. Any decision, any response to us is agonizingly slow. Now, is that, wait a minute, is that labor management relations or is that just not-for-profit bureaucracy, do you think? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Yeah, it's not unique to the union at the MFA. It happens in other areas as well. Um, but it is when you take eight weeks to get a response on something um, that is more urgent for your member that they need a reply on, it is tough. Yeah. So let's talk about the Whitney. What about the Whitney? Ha uh, are there still lingering tensions from the bargaining, from the organizing uh, are, are you still sort of, uh, are you and management still sort of circling, uh, each other, Carissa, or is it, or has it got, fallen into a more normal rhythm, do you think? 
Yeah, I think there's, you know, a culture shift that has to be had in terms of like communication and how the processes that they're used to doing and the way that they're used to, you know, just doing things with no recourse. Um, it's an adjustment for sure. It's not just for management, but like for employees as well, for their first instinct to come to the union and as opposed to, you know, HR, like it's a big shift. Um, but it doesn't feel like anything that is insurmountable. I mean, as as Jordan said, you know, a lot of things you're not going to get in a first contract. So you build up for the next one. Yeah. Uh, Erica, what's been your experience uh, at the Whitney with uh, with the, you know, it's a new it's, it's a new marriage. It may be a shotgun marriage, but it's a marriage. Yeah, I would say I, I mean, I agree with everything Carissa just said. And then I guess in addition to that, like, you know, for better for worse there's actually quite there's a bit of a different cast of characters from when we were bargaining um you know both on the membership side and the management side um so it's like explain that explain what you mean by that well we have a different um head of human resources um so that's like a major difference um and also you know we museum worker like jobs are pretty high turnover even still i mean our contract is very new hopefully that that sort of mitigates that um because we want people to stay a long time but um yeah so there's just a lot of new people in the mix and um i actually think i mean in some ways it's good like there isn't like any bitterness from like many you know over a year of bargaining on that like there's i think a reduced amount of like not I mean not that tension isn't still there it's sort of just like the nature of management and employee kind of relationships but yeah there's just like new people involved so it's a lot of just teaching people like hey you can ask for help with that or you know this part of the contract protects you from what's going on and like you know some people came very shortly before our contract was ratified or even after and so just like getting people up to speed i feel like is actually like the greatest hurdle <laughs> it's like the most amount of work right now is just like training people on the contract um, yeah so talk which about is that okay it's no problem yeah, <laughs> especially the management especially the uh, management training, ma training management <laughs> yeah. yeah i assume that's not the union's responsibility i assume that's uh hr and it's LR's our burden but it's our burden. Our burden. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to let's talk about that a little bit. Is um, because there is turnover in the museum world, mm -hmm. um, and this is this is a common experience, not just in your industry, but in a lot of industries where, uh, particularly, it's it's more common in the retail industry and 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 some others. Um, so you know, some of the workers were there when the fight happened, and some of them came sort of after the fight had been won. And uh, how do you incorporate the new members into the unit? How do you make them feel comfortable that the decisions that have been made on their behalf are good decisions for them and that they're gonna be full members of the union and have a full mm -hmm. voice in the union? Um, and do you worry that's, I mean, 98% and 92%, those are pretty impressive vote totals. 
Do you worry that you're going to start to lose support as that turnover continues? Erica, let me start with you. And then Jordan, I want to get your reaction and Maida, if you have thoughts. Um, Honestly, honestly, I, of course, that's, there's always people who are reluctant about unions, but it doesn't worry me because, I mean, if you talk to someone for like 15 minutes about like, here's why we formed a union, here's why we went, you know, we fought for this contract. Um, Like the basis of that is like, you know, we're a wall-to-wall unit. We decided to have this because of this notion of just like, we work at the same place and like, I'm gonna have your back and you're gonna have my back. And like, that is very appealing to people. And just like the stability of like knowing like we're gonna get raises every X number of months and it's gonna be this amount is actually like, I think people like that because most employers don't just don't have that. And so like, you know, just feeling like they're protected by something like feels good and like included in something like we like it's kind of like fun and cool to be in a union too like aside from like all the obvious like worker protections i think Um, erica just gave us the erica just gave us the lift quote for this blog cast and that is it is fun (laughs) and cool to be in a union i you know i think that actually happens to be true Uh, (laughs) we're finding that out you know we're absolutely Mm -hmm. finding that out Jordan, what about what about an MFA? Um, you do you have the same kind of turnover, and and how do you? I, I guess the phrase that the corporate world would use: How do you onboard the new members? And do you worry that you're going to start losing support if the turnover continues? So I, I agree with Erica. I don't think we're going to lose support, but it definitely takes like strategy and intention to like communicate with all of these new members. New The turnover is highest in very specific departments at the MFA, um, member and visitor services and retail being two of them, um, along with a couple other smaller departments. We try and have very strong leaders in those departments who are around or who work with those departments quite often who can be like, hey, you're new. Have you heard about the union yet? Come have a coffee with me. Let me tell you how great it is. Here's your sign up link and like all of that. I think the other piece of that is that the MFA, one of the reasons we organize and something that was really unifying for our unit, unifying for our unit, um, is that the MFA had a very much a lack of communication. So a lot of people came to the union to try and get information during furlough, during COVID, during return to work, and all of these things that came out of the pandemic. So our delegate group has been very intentional. We are here. Here's our phone number. Here's our email. You can find us at open office hours or drop in lunches. This is where my office is. Like, reach out to me anytime. And people have been doing that, even for issues that the union cannot really cover. Um, But I think it really helps to show that we are here for anything they have. And we're just very open if it's not something we can help with, but only provide advice on. So I don't think the union support is going anywhere anytime soon. Um, People really value having those resources in a workplace and knowing that um, there's always someone to turn to. Yeah. So Carissa, let's talk about the future a little bit. You're now full-time working for the local as an organizer, if I have that right. Uh, And there's Lord knows there's no city on earth that has more cultural institutions than the greatest city on earth, New York city. 
So my guess is you've got a lot of places to organize. So tell us how it's going. I'm not going to ask you to disclose any confidences if you have uh, some organizing campaigns that are not yet public. But give us a sense of how's it going? What's the reaction been? Are people pointing to the Whitney, pointing to the, there's a, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but uh, the Guggenheim just got a nice uh, just uh, pay settled. increase out of collective bargaining. Um, how, what, tell us about some of the conversations that you're having with other cultural institutions in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I am full time. I caught the organizing bug. I think lots of people do, and I hope they continue to. I mean, as Erica put wonderfully, unions are cool and fun to be in. So I'm optimistic, but I'm always optimistic about organizing because I think it's really important. And once people learn what they are, they're on board. I mean, once you understand, you know, what unions do and what they can do and you know, how they can benefit not just you, but everyone around you, I think, you know, it's kind of a no brainer to me, you know, um, and I, I want to put out into the universe and into the world that it just keeps going and people, you know, push for themselves and advocate for themselves and others and have solidarity and become aware of the things around them. You know, we take, we do live in this, you know, wonderful time where we have access to all these things and we do live in this wonderful city with all these institutions and there are people and, and power in the people and, you know, it's so important to boost it up. I care so much about art and art institutions and I want to, I want everyone and everything to constantly be improving and getting better and expanding. So I feel very great about it. And I hope, I hope others do as well. And I hope they, they think about it and consider it and don't feel, you know, hopeless or, or stalled in any way. All right, so I, I'm going to put you on the spot, but you can take yourself off the spot if you want. We're not very tough here at the Power Work blog. You want to you want to make a prediction about how many more unions will be organized in museums before the end of 2023 in New York City? Yeah. Let's just I won't no. I won't make you do a national guess. No, we don't want to make that prediction. No, okay, we don't no want predictions. to make that prediction. All right, right Meta. So I want to I'm going to ask you something a little bit harder then. Um, so as you said, New York city is New York city. It is one of the mm -hmm. most heavily unionized jurisdictions in the, in the United States. New York state is one of the top three states in union density. Um, I believe California and Hawaii are the other two. I may be wrong about that. I haven't looked recently, but it's, it's in the, it's certainly near the top. Um, and so people who are watching this are potentially saying, oh, sure, anybody could organize a bunch of lefty museum workers yeah. in New York City, for goodness sakes. That's the easiest job on earth. Carissa just walks in, signs the card, she's done, goes off and has drinks. But here's the, here's the real, <laughs> if only, right. So here's the real question. What about outside New York City? Now, I know we've, there's been successful organizing, I believe, at the Art Institute in Chicago and also the Art Institute School in Chicago. And you hear about it in a few other places. But can we expect to see the same kind of success in museum organizing, whether it's the UAW, our friends at AFSME also do a lot of organizing in public cultural institutions, can we see the, expect to see the same kind of success in Nebraska, in Alabama, in Texas, in Arizona, in Colorado? You know, let's pick a purple state. Um, or is this really a 
big city, blue city phenomenon, do you think? Well, I, I, it's a really good question, and it, in, uh, we'll see whether there's anything that happens in any of the red states or the purple states around this. Even, even in those circumstances, museums do tend to be in urban areas where there is potentially, you know, it is potentially easier to organize because it's a, a more uh, a more liberal thing. But, you know, I, I certainly would like to see that, you know, see that happening. And it's a legitimate thing to say that, um, to point out that museum workers are organizing often in, in union dense areas. Um, I have to say Boston is tougher than New York and um, the MFA people because the union density is lower and, and uh, we have been organizing in Massachusetts and Connecticut as well. Um, and, uh, you know, those are uh, at least Massachusetts is not as 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 union dense as New York. Um, but uh, the Nebraska's out of local 2110's jurisdiction, so I don't know a lot about it and can't really speak to it. But I would love to see, you know, um, I would love to see organizing in some of the red states in museums because perhaps it is an entree into more into more organizing. Certainly, museum workers are probably as a group more liberal um than you know in in some other workplaces you know not completely but probably more so yeah okay so i'll put i'll put you on the spot with a with a sort of yes no question or an up down question is it harder to organize in the museum sector or in the higher education sector well i think the the um museum sector is um it, the most of the organizing that's been going on in higher ed more recently is academic workers, um, grad students, um, you know, uh, some adjuncts, although not as many as I'd like to see, um, uh, and a, a little bit of uh, postdoc and faculty organizing. Um, and I think the workforce in museums, while the demographic is similar, people do take jobs in museums. Um, to earn a living and potentially to have a career. And I think that does make it more challenging. Professionals who are in museums hope to stay there, promote up and advance. And so their view of the workplace, I think, is a, li is a, little, bit, um, is a little bit different. Um, so uh, I, I think in some of the university organizing, I think that's going on now um, may, you know, the challenges are a little different than, than they would be in museums. Yeah. Cause this, we're seeing, we're seeing a wave of success in, in higher education. I mean, it's really quite impressive. There's a lot of battles going on, big, big battles going on, but boy, oh boy, huge units being organized all across the United States. Uh, um, grad students, but not just grad students, adjuncts, as you said, but also faculty in some places where they're able to organize. So yes, um, it would be nice to um, see the museums. Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I would say that the museum counterparts really in universities, though, are not organizing in universities. Um, some clerical workers have organized and it's been very tough. I, that's the sector I came out of. I was a clerical worker at Columbia when we organized. 
um, but uh, administrative staff um, in universities are not moving in that way. So I think um, the counterpart employees um, in universities are not organizing, um, you know, at the at the same rate. Um, and you know, I would just say there's there's some significant differences I think between graduate student and academic. Uh, organizing and um, organizing among administrative, professional, or front-facing workers. Yeah. Well, I want to thank all four of these powerful women for being with us today to talk about museum organizing. You were terrific, and we really got some insights into what life is like uh, behind the scenes and in front of the scenes in museums. And wish you a lot of success, Carissa, with your organizing Erica, with the campaign that was announced, let me just say, while we were off camera, but I don't hear you agreeing to actually run for the position that Maida nominated you for, uh, and Jordan, with your leadership at the MFA, and we look forward to, we're going to, you know, since we're at Northeastern, we're going to drop by and see you. Uh, so okay. thanks a lot for being with us. Great conversation. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. A really interesting learning about this sector that's been around for decades and decades and decades and decades, but hasn't been organized. Uh, and now it's organizing. I think that's terrific. I hope it's going to organize all across the United States. Uh, hey, thanks for hanging around. Let me just uh, urge you to connect with us. You can subscribe on the blog. You're here on the blog. You can subscribe just by clicking, giving us your email address, and uh, we'll send you the weekly download. We'll keep, send you a weekly newsletter. We'll keep you updated on uh, what we're posting on the blog. There's a lot of terrific material uh, on the blog right now. I just posted something new about uh, the Labor Department's new prevailing wage Davis-Bacon regulations. I analyzed them in the context of worker power. So take, go take a look at that, but subscribe to the blog. But you can also connect with us on, I guess we're gonna call it X now. Are we calling it X or are we still calling it the, the artist formerly known as Twitter? Uh, connect with us there. Uh, connect with us on threads. Connect with us by following our page on LinkedIn, the Power at Work page. On X slash Twitter, it's at Power at Work blog. On threads, it's at Power at Work blog. On Instagram, it's at Power at Work blog. On LinkedIn, just search for the Power at Work page and follow us there. You can also follow us on Facebook. We're on all of those platforms. We're really eager to connect with you, to hear from you, send us a direct message through one of those channels. But most important, subscribe. Thanks a lot. We've got a bunch of great blogcasts coming up soon. Check back here to the blog or subscribe so that you can keep updated on what's coming. We have some, I promise you, we have some that you're absolutely not going to want to miss as we come into the lead up to Labor Day. Um, so please stay close to us, stay connected to us. Look forward to seeing you again on the blog very soon.